Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we finish our coverage of John Carpenter's 1982 horror classic, The Thing. Now, why don't we just wait here a little while and see what happens? This is part two of our Halloween special. Yeah, our, the exciting conclusion to our conversation with Mike Arnson about the thing. Yeah, we saved the best for last year. We, I really enjoyed where this conversation ended up. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, there was a little bit of an audio issue that comes up in this second part, but it was still a great conversation. Uh, if you want to hear the first part of that, that was our previous episode. So you're going to want to go back and check that out. So before we jump into part two here, we just wanted to take a second to talk to you about Audible. We're, we actually have an Audible affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. So what you can do is sign up for that with our affiliate link and you'll get 30 free days and one free credit for any book that you want in their collection. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and recommend our next project, which is Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones. Uh, you can go ahead and grab that audiobook with that free credit and go ahead and get a sneak peek at what we're going to be covering next. Yeah, I'm really excited because I've seen the anime and I love it. And I, this is, I'll probably end up using Audible in order to listen to this story. Yeah, I'm glad we're finally getting to some fantasy. I think this will be fun to, to, to try out that genre and hopefully uh, our listeners will enjoy it. Uh, again, if you want to do that, it's going to be audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Okay, let's jump into part two of our conversation with Mike Arnzen. Yep, we'll just be picking up right where we left off last week. So uh, next up, we get McCready's, McCready's drinking and, and inspecting the garment, and somebody calls over the comm system that he needs to come get his stuff out of the storeroom because they're putting the remains of the creatures in there. And um, once he grabs his stuff, Fuchs wants to talk to Mac, and Fuchs is kind of this, he's kind of also a doctor or scientist of some sort under Blair, and he wants to talk to Mac outside in one of the tractors that they have, and I love McCready in the scene because he's like, it's like 40 below out there, man. He's like, I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this. And he's just such a character. I love it. So Fuchs and Mac head outside. While they're clearing out the storeroom, George is left alone. Windows comes in. Windows is the comms guy who's been trying to contact the outside world. He leaves the room and George is left alone. And we see for the first time the creature that's supposedly dead start to move underneath a tarp. When Mac and Fuchs are outside, they're talking about Blair won't come out of his room and Fuchs has his notes and he's saying there's notes of how dangerous the creature is and how Blair believes that it's still there's still cellular activity so it's still alive and at the same time tentacles are coming out and blood is dripping out of this body bag and Windows comes back into the storeroom and we get this crazy scene where George is like completely tied up by tentacles and it's coming out of his mouth and it's like moist over his whole body and he's like Man, vibrating I'm pissed and... on his behalf how come you didn't come tell me about it i'm sitting here by the damn thing you know there's still cellular activity and you go tell mccready not me like come on 
Yeah. It's, yeah. This is also very similar to the scene with the melting ice in the novella, where, where the, the ice is slowly melting and we get a hint that the thing is still alive and, mo- and like the eyes behind the ice are still like have an intelligence that's thinking or something, right? And this is kind of that scene for us in the, in, you know, in the, in the movie version. It also totally distracts us from the thing that escaped in the previous moment when we when That's we right. up through the ceiling. Now we're like, oh, it must have come down here to attack this guy. Uh, you know. And it is, a you know, <laughs> the, the, the way you described him being laced up is really interesting. Like, it is almost like a boa constrictor kind of moment. Uh, and we get to see the power of these tentacles, not just to splay out everywhere and kind of you know, lash and try to, you know, find escape or to murder somebody, but to methodically strangle somebody and, and all that. And it's, um, you know, the body bloats under the, the weight of that. And it's really sick. So it's like every time there's a chance for this body horror, Carpenter will surprise us somehow by taking it in a new direction. I really admire that. I think it, it keeps you watching and you want to see what he's going to do next, no matter how gross it is or over the top. You're like, wow! If they did that, what are you going to do next? And exactly, and I, I, I will say that when I was when I was watching it when I was younger, I definitely viewed it with a different eye because, you know, I grew up in a time period where there were like special effects that were, compu- somewhat computer generated, and so you see what they're doing, and you're like, well, they can't do anything bigger than that. They can't top that. Is basically was my mentality when I first saw this movie, and every time that he does, and I think it's, it just, it's a, it's incredible. Yeah, and they're scene. Those are scene stealers. Whenever, whenever the the monster shows itself, it's a scene stealer, and he just lets it play out. You know, uh, and and it, in a weird way, it also relieves all the tension <laughs> because all along we're so paranoid. Where is it? Who's who is it? You know, and you're, you just constantly have all this uncertainty until the body reveals the truth. And, and you know, that's always what's happening in a, in these movies that have monsters that. It's the truth being revealed, and it allows us to catch our breath, but we're stunned at the same time. And this movie's ingenious, <laughs> the way that it, the pacing of that in this movie really blows me away. I kind of want to think about these, um, you almost don't think of them as like disease vectors, right? You, you have the thing that escapes through the roof, you have the person who gets um, taken in by the dog in that mystery shadow scene. That's a, that's a second vector. And then now you have the body that gets on the scientist as a third vector. So if we kind of track them that way, it might be interesting to see where they go and maybe theorize like how people got infected. So Windows comes back to the storeroom, sees that George is completely covered in tentacles and runs out to find McCready and, and Fuchs. And they all run back inside. And of course, the thing is gone. There's nothing in the room. They see that it busted out of the window and they run outside into the snow to follow it. And we get this scene where, and I love this scene with the hands. We see his deformed hands and the scream that he lets out. So he falls, they catch up to him and he falls to his knees and they're all surrounding him. And he's just, this is where we see that the thing is effective one-on-one, but when a group is around it, it it becomes, it's vulnerable, it's scared. It, It doesn't want to have to deal with all these people at once. So on his knees, opens his mouth, freakishly huge he opens his mouth in a way that I, I don't think i could do and lets out this scream that's that's so unnerving it's almost like a howl too more than a scream it's something some weird sound for sure hmm. well i mean if it just you know was a dog before a man maybe that's part of it uh it's totally in like the werewolf as as shapeshifter kind of modality but for me i, I 
it reminded me of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, which is also like a similar text in a way, isn't it? Uh, you know, and also a re- the, the 70s one, right? Because that's also oh, a re- totally. I mean, there's that iconic moment where Donald Sutherland just kind of lifts his finger and points and does that. Oh, yeah. Belts out that wild, unworldly scream. And that's, I Amazing, don't know which film yeah. came first. Maybe it was, it must have been Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, 1972, is that what you said? Um, I don't. Uh, in the 70s, I'm not sure. The thing was what, 80, 82? Gosh. 82. 82. So a decade later or, or less. Uh, yeah, I mean, surely Carpenter saw that. And it's, and it's, and it's fingers. Like, there's, what is, I, I, I would love to pick your brain about this, Mike. There is an obsession, and I love it too, in horror movies with long, long fingers. Like, why is that so creepy to us? <laughs> um, <laughs> to put you on the spot, you know. Uh, long hands—they're—they're—they're they're, they're creepy. You're right. Uh, well, I mean, it, it kind of well in the movie, right? This—that's how the creature moves around with spider fingers, right? Yeah. And and here to see that kind of insectoid look on the human being. It's otherwise normal, except for the bug eyes and maybe the open mouth. It's just those hands. And, you know, I mean, right away, I'm imagining some, some analogs with um, technology. Like technology is always called an extension of our hands. That's what tools are, right? They allow us to do more with our hands. So it gives the monster power to give it longer fingers, bigger hands, and things like that. Um, and I... I, I I think that makes sense in this movie. Wow, I'm impressed. That was because yeah. Luke called you out there, and he was like, "I was going to say I'm impressed." Luke, Luke kind of put you on the spot, and you came out with something that I completely get, can get behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. While you were talking, I came up with my own theory, and 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 um, it's more, it's more. I was thinking about how, like, if you think about the first person perspective, we are in in our bodies. The thing we see all the time is our own hands, right, doing things manipulating the world that's how we interact the world in a lot of ways and so it's a very close thing to have transform and so it's an immediately something is really wrong if that if that appendage is is out of proportion in some way right well just imagine if the character was naked instead of dressed at that moment what else would be ultra long (laughs) i mean i mean it's feet of course but but it's like the the lower extremities are the last to change. Is that what we're supposed to take out of this? Like the farthest away from the brain? You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, Body Snatchers, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was 56 and then also 78. 78, okay. So they're all surrounding George and he, he's on his knees screaming, howling. And McCready kicks over this this barrel of, of oil and throws a flare down and, and they watch it burn. They They realize that they need to burn all of the remains because these remains had gotten to George and, and turned him. So they collect everything, burn everything. And Maxie's, after everybody's left, after they burned everything, Maxie's Blair running around the camp and he was like leaving the helicopter. So he runs up and checks the helicopter and it's been like pieced out. There's pieces missing. So they think he's trying to like put these helicopters out of commission so they can't get away. And so he chases after him. He's next season. He's in the radio comms room, and he's kind of holding Windows hostage and taking an axe to all their communication equipment and totally isolating them at this point. There's that axe. (laughs) So eventually, all the men gang up and take down Blair, and they take him to the shack and they board him up and they isolate him there. 
because they they can't trust him it, because he's either going mad or he's a thing. Yeah, well, that was going to be my question. Um, do you think he's a thing at this point? I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't think so at all. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't think so either. It's another instance. It I mean, kind of echoes what happens with the uh, Norwegians who are shooting at the dog, just you know, on behalf of the camp, but they don't realize it. The same thing here. You know, he's trying to save the world basically by uh, making sure that the camp can't leave, so that the alien can't leave the camp, kind of thing. Um, and they don't realize it. You know, he's, he's screaming out all these weird things that just sound like Tourette's <laughs> uh, as he's hacking away at the computers. And uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where the 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 intellectual is the uh, villain at that point, but he's also like the hero that could save them, you know, from themselves. And, and the movie is all about this physical violence that people resort to when they don't communicate. And uh, that's what we're seeing, you know, dramatized there, really. I want to, you know, there's an interesting kind of, I'm sorry to skip back a little bit, but there's that interesting moment after they burn the body and they're all standing around it, you know, after McCready kicks over that fuel can. And, you know, Carpenter sets it up so the whole cast is there quietly watching. And it's, you know, it's, you could say historically that's like a reference to Vietnam where the, the, the monk burned himself and things like that. But to me, it, it's really stagey. It, it's asking us to really think about what is happening here. You know, rich, it's almost like ritual because of the way they're all standing uh, surrounding this burning body. It has this real... I don't know what to call it. It's staged. <laughs> hmm. you know? um, it also makes us wonder who in that group is a thing. Who can we not trust? Because we see them all in, in the same spot at the same time. And yeah, and I'm sure Carpenter gave them the direction of everybody act like you're the thing at this moment so that <laughs> the audience will have no idea who's, who's who. <laughs> well, and, and to get back to my uh, disease vector, that's the end of that particular vector. So we have two others. We have the mystery man and we have the thing that escaped through the, through the roof. Very good. So yeah, uh, uh, Gary, uh, sorry, not Gary, uh, Blair losing his mind here. This is also something right from the novella, right? And I think it's the characters also named Blair in the novella who does a very similar thing and also gets locked up in the shack. And that plays out in a very similar way. Um, and, and, and much like in the novella in here, I don't think he's a thing yet. And at some point off page and for here off screen, he becomes a thing, and I'm not maybe 100% sure when that happens, but I'm thinking maybe we have to assume that the dog that escaped through the ceiling is the one that gets to him? Yeah, I think so, because it's it's tunneled. I, I, I think we're supposed to infer, at least in my reading, or my viewing of this, is that the the tunneling is, is the thing that got away, and so it tunnels up underneath Blair and, and gets him, and then uses... See, I thought he tunneled down into in, into there. Blair did. Well, yeah, what did you think, Mike? Did you think that Blair tunneled down to make that ship, or do you think that something tunneled up to him? <sighs> well, I told you, like, the whole tunnel thing came as a surprise to me at the end. I mean, it's built in to be a surprise, but I was like, wait a minute, how the hell? And I, Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe Blair was trying to dig his, you know, great escape <laughs> out mm. through under the floorboards. Uh, again, a war movie reference, right? But... Uh, Maybe it is the thing that's free, and it kind of cleverly found its way underground to that shack. I mean, that's hard to imagine how it could position itself to know to do that. Uh, so there, we haven't got to the scene yet, but I'll skip ahead a little bit towards it, just because we're on the topic of Blair right now. 
there's a part where they go out there and he asks to come back inside. He's like, you can let me out now. I'm okay now. And he's being kind of creepy, but he also mentions, like, I hear things out here, which is a very creepy thing to say. And that makes me wonder, is he a thing at that point? Because, yes, he's acting creepy and wanting to come inside, but he's also talking about hearing things, which could be, like, the precursor to, like, he can hear the creature outside of his shack wanting to get in. I'm not really sure which way to go on that. I think I think he... I think I like to think that he is a thing there, and he's, like, trying to, like like trick them into letting him out but at the same time if he's hearing stuff it kind of makes me think that he's not like you said it could be both either way and it works because he's like the smart one so he can outsmart everybody and they don't trust him because of his abilities to you know convince and talk and all that like he has power over he understands more than they do but they can't trust a word he says right uh there's all sorts of weird things going on there with that paranoia of the scientific community and and things like that um but blair is smart enough to you know he could be trying to work out an escape or something by digging yeah. underneath the floorboards i mean it's it's if, if he's possessed by the alien the alien has his intelligence right uh yeah, i, I mean so. you, you have to suspend the disbelief that it can learn how to talk and like everybody else that it could really have the same human thought patterns as opposed to just the body yeah, in the novella, that's explained as like an ESP power it has. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't get a little goofy computer screen t- telling us that yeah. you know, in the movie. We just get the cell. So maybe the brain cell. But then you got to ask about identity and how we, who we are and how we can do these things. So uh, the movie requires us to suspend our disbelief about all sorts of things. And right. sometimes it just throws out red herrings all over, too. So who knows is the answer to that one. <laughs> Definitely. So once they take Blair to the shack, he's warning Mac. He's telling him to watch Clark, even though he's being locked up. He's like, watch Clark because he's kind of suspicious. He spent the most time with the dog. And um, after this, they kind of, a few of them convene outside of the shack. And Dr. Copper brings up a blood serum test that they might be able to do. And so they go to this fridge where they're keeping the blood and come to find out somebody had just gotten to it and it slashed all the bags of blood. The lock was undamaged, and the only people who had access to it was Dr. Copper through Gary giving Dr. Copper the key and Gary, who is the commander. The crew all turn on each other in this scene because nobody knows who to trust, and and Gary actually says, somebody may have taken the keys from me and just gotten into the fridge. Nobody really knows exactly what happened, but Windows loses it, runs down the hallway, and tries to grab a gun. And Gary doesn't let this happen. He runs down the hallway after him and holds him at gunpoint, tells him to put the gun down, Eventually he does, and then Gary realizes nobody can trust him at this point, so he puts his gun down that he was holding on Windows, and that's when Childs tries to take the gun, and, and McCready steps in and says, no, we can't trust you, I'll, I'll take the gun. Uh, now, this is an interesting departure from the novella, because in the novella, they do the blood serum test, but then it's revealed that the blood that went into the serum was tainted by the thing, and then... That's how they say, well, the two people who provided blood for the serum are Copper and Gary. One of them must be a thing. That gets simplified here into the who had access to the key. But ultimately, it's the same, right? Same two characters. And you're set up with the situation of one of them is definitely a thing. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that scene also just serves a kind of obvious purpose, I guess. And that is that all their survival plans are being undermined, right? So the thing has this <clears throat> devious intent to 
like kill them off without even attacking them, right? It's trying to isolate them. It, 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 you know, it's, it, it cuts the cables on the helicopter. It, you know, ruins all the blood that might help them survive. So, uh, like bit by bit, the resources get cut up by this this creature, uh, and it's very you know, it's using brain power as much as the physical threat, right? I mean, early in the movie, maybe maybe it's close to this scene. Uh, they speculate that you know, if there are all of us around, it it hides. But if if you're ever alone with it, you're gonna die, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of like this communal bond where they should be like staying together all the time and never yeah. ever leaving each other's sight. They should be. They, yeah, it's, it becomes frustrating whenever they don't stay together for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask: do 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 you guys have a theory on who destroyed the blood? I can't figure that one out. I really can't. James, I mean, we come to find out that neither of the accused. I I think that somebody stole the keys. Like like Gary proposed yeah i think that's what had to have happened because both of those they would they would had no motive neither of those two people had any motive motive to do it so i don't know if i could say for sure who i just think somebody took the keys somebody it's else got it's got to be palmer right if we're tracking we're tracking the if, if that was who got infected by the shadow scene which i propose it was and he's the one who gets revealed later he had to have done what gary said which is lift the keys off of him and essentially frame them there is one other option though and that is I think it works chronologically that Blair might've done it before he, you know, was taken to the shack. That's true. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, he's destroying everything else. Maybe he would yeah. have destroyed that. I don't, you know, they say he doesn't have a key, but it, I find that hard to believe too <laughs> as a scientist and all that. So who knows? Yeah. Cause but right before this, he had been running around and destroying the helicopters and all that. But at the same time, the blood, the blood was also like pooling out of the fridge. Like it had just been cut recently. Yeah. So who, I, I, who can, I don't, I think. And destroying the helicopters left hurts the thing because it locks the, it keeps the thing from being able to spread. Whereas the blood is a, it was a test. And so it helps the thing. So they're all, it's done for two different reasons. I, I, I think I like my Palmer theory. <laughs> <laughs> you won me over. So Mac takes, now that he's in charge, he takes all the blood bags that were out there and they burn those. Um, and he tells all the men that he knows he's not a thing and he's pretty sure not all of them are a thing because they would all attack him. This, this, this is proof that blood can be tainted and can, and can be a vector for the thing. And they burn the blood. And I just want to remember this scene for later because I'm going to reference it again. <laughs> so they decide... Mac decides since he's in charge that he wants to sedate Copper, Clark, and Gary because they're the most likely to be the things. Mac records a tape while all of this is going on where he's kind of recording it for record and he says the thing rips through clothes and he's looking at the clothing and and nobody trusts anybody now. And I, I thought that was cool because he does this thing where he records nobody trusts anybody, rewinds it, listens to it, and then records something else right after that. I thought he maybe even recorded it over it. Yeah, so did I. Which was I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, because he goes further back. I think that makes more sense. Yeah. Why do that? I guess is it, is it, is it an open question? Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know what his motives are. And that kind of leads into us, like believing that maybe there's some sort of like there's some turmoil in his character. Like we don't. It's starting to lead to us not necessarily trusting McCready a hundred percent as we had from the beginning. Mm, that's true. It introduced that. That could be it on the part of the filmmaker at least 
to make us doubt whether or not we can trust McCready a little bit. Right. And, you know, what I find weird about that scene, uh, watching it over again now, that's the only scene we see him doing that, right? Mm -hmm. It's such a short little moment. There's not a lot of substance to it, except that kind of act of hesitation. He rewinds. We don't know really quite how far, what he's deleting, I think. It's a little ambiguous. Uh, But it it certainly serves the notion that he's isolated and alone and doesn't trust anybody else. He can only talk to himself. Uh, And it's a moment of introspection. Uh, that also shows that he's, you know, a good soldier, so to speak, that he wants to leave this recording for posterity, that he's looking out for mankind, that he is heroic. And, you know, even though we don't might not trust him in terms of the, the alien plot, in terms of the characterization, it kind of keeps him afloat as the protagonist so that we're going to trust him. And, it, and we'll find it believable when the rest of the cast trusts him. Because everybody else, everybody else is losing it. Like yeah. all their all their human he frailties. Cool. Come, yeah, everybody else is freaking out, and and you know. So at one point, uh, I forgot which character it is. Is it uh, the dog Clark with the with the scalpel who threatens to yeah. stab McGreedy yes. Lady uh, later? I, I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but you know he just turns around and shoots him. In. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's in the interest of the greater good. So all these moments with McCready are about: is he doing it for the greater good or not? And he is. So. You know, we have faith in him as like the last man standing at the end. We want to trust him, yeah. So while Fuchs is going over Blair's notes, he's like on his own kind of going over the notes and the lights go out and he goes to check what it is and a shadow crosses his path and keeps moving. And then he kind of chases after it. And in the snow, he finds McCready's jacket with holes all in it, which is another instance of us not trusting McCready 100% because of information we've been given. Do Do you think that shadow was just the thing coming through do you think it was a certain person was it I blair it was palmer i guess blair couldn't have gotten it out i think it was palmer palmer <laughs> i believe it i mean the the way, the way that you're you're posing all this palmer stuff it makes me like next time i watch it i'll again watch it differently and think maybe it was him all along <clears throat> totally i love that palmer's like the stoner guy too like yeah, he's like, like, man, or what is that moment where he's like, oh, I'll take care of it. And they're like, no, not you. And he's like, well, at least you thought about it, you know? Yeah, thanks for thinking of it, though. <laughs> so he's like the, I don't know, I want to say almost like the irresponsible teenager character, but that's not quite right either. Uh, but he is kind of like, you know, dropped out of it all. And uh, it's interesting that he gets away with things because of that. So if he is the thing hiding in plain sight, uh that's awesome (laughs) so fuchs is missing now and all the men go looking for him and they split into teams and certain people don't want to go with others because they suspect that they might be the thing so i think palmer doesn't want to go with windows because he thinks that windows is a thing and it's just creating this tension and this this you know turmoil within the characters nobody is trusting anybody yeah, somebody says. Uh, some says somebody says everybody watch whoever you're with real close. <laughs> so yeah, that just adds to the paranoia because like if you can imagine being in a situation where you're paired up and everybody knows that the person you're with could actually be a monster imitating a person, <laughs> like that's some that's some extreme paranoia right there. So McCready goes to Blair's shed and asks if if Blair has seen Fuchs and Blair has a noose in his shack now. And he, this is when you were talking about, he's asking to be left, let out. He's kind of begging to be let out. He's saying, come on, I'm, I'm fine now. Uh, I'm hearing noises. And 
it, McCready does this thing where he's like kind of thinks about it and then he's just like, we'll see and shuts it behind him. After they leave Blair's shack, they find Fuke's body burned nearby. And I thought this was really interesting because he seemingly was trying to kill the thing or he accidentally dropped a torch on himself. And now, do you think that he was covered in some sort of oil or do we are we just supposed to believe that the flare burned him? <laughs> just the flare burned him to, to a crisp. I think Palmer killed him. <laughs> I think he had to have, right? Like, I, I can't imagine. I mean, unless the dog escaped thing killed him somehow. Right, it's it's kind of a mysterious moment as to what really happened to him. Yeah. So McCready sees um, the light to his shack on, and I actually really like this moment because he's like, "We got to go up to my shack," and they're like, "Why do we need to go to your shack?" And he's like, "Cause I turned the lights off." And they look up, and the lights are on. So they go over to it, and we actually get the perspective of the characters that are still inside the base, the main base, and only Nalls comes back. And he says that he cut McCready's line because when he was in McCready's um, like quarters there, he found a tattered, torn up with holes in it jacket from that said McCready on it. And he had pulled it out to show them all. So they were all like, McCready's one of them now. And some of them believe it, some of them don't. And th- this is a great, great moment where Nalls is on his knees kind of near the door and the door just starts slowly spinning like the... The little handle just slowly spins and then we push into the, the slowly spinning handle. And I thought that was great. It's such a horror movie moment. It's such a carpenter moment because it's it's like kind of reminiscent of like something you would see in like a Halloween film, mm-hmm. like his film Halloween. So next thing we hear is McCready busts into the storage room window in order to get back into the base. And when they finally axe down the door, McCready's holding Dyna a stick like a a bundle of dynamite with a flare and he's like i'll blow this whole thing up if you guys try to touch me so cool he looks like a caveman or something right like he's covered in ice and snow and he's looks insane he's got dynamite and and it reminds I me mean, of yeah it reminds me of jack nicholson from from the shining yeah where yes. he's like sitting and he's like frozen at the end well that's a later Very, movie too so maybe that movie well actually yeah is that is the, the shining was later in 82 right I no, thought, I think it was 80. I think it was 80. Oh, okay. I was wrong. So interesting. Yeah, it is. And, you know, sometimes those effects are like the same crew who's working on the character across different movies, or they just happen to have more white dust that they can use in the lot, you know? There's sometimes just practical, stupid reasons for the way that movies have the same kind of look about them. But, but I'll yeah, I'll take it as a reference. Like, I would, <laughs> I would love it to be a Kubrick reference. It's you an know? homage. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, you know, that, that whole moment that you're describing where uh, McCready has the flare and the dynamite and he's like totally desperate and alone. It's, it's his strongest and it's him at his weakest as well because he's totally isolated, desperate. He'll kill the whole camp and all that. And, you know, we believe like he's really on his own at that moment. And it's the end, I think, of that arc of suspicion we have for him. That is, you know, like the setup of the burned jack or the broken jacket and him recording himself and erasing it. It's like the end of that. And yeah, I mean, if he's the thing desperately just trying to hold on for safety, sure. But it's so human and it's so primitively human. Like Luke said, he's like at his caveman level that you don't question it. You're like, yeah, of course he's desperate to survive around not only the creature, but all these crazy people, you know, that are paranoid and losing it and i'm even thinking back to that scene with blair where he shuts the shuts him in the shack and says we'll see you later 
if we are suspecting McGreedy at that moment, <coughs> then the creature is keeping Blair away because Blair's the only one who really understands it all. It's like, I don't even need to kill you, Blair. I just keep you in this little prison over here while I take care of the rest of the crew first. That's what's implied by that moment of the switching of the uh, little door window at the shack. So I think at this moment, we believe McCready for the rest of the movie that he's human. And, and in fact, I I think in the follow-up scene, he goes, I know I'm human. <laughs> now let's test the rest of you guys. You know, it's, it's, uh, He takes over his protagonist there, totally. Uh, he's 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 showing how capable he is there too, right? Like he has figured out the suspicion. He knows going in to the situation that everyone's going to be ready to kill him before he even opens his mouth. So he's he's engineered a scenario where he's going to get to say what he needs to say. So we immediately respect like how resourceful he's proven to be. And what's funny is McCready has now become the same desperate and willing to do anything hero that Blair was before, where he's willing to take out all the comms. He's willing to he's willing to sacrifice everybody in the camp in order to make sure it doesn't get out, and that's kind of where we find McCready in this moment too. So, brilliant. So while he's holding the dynamite, McCready is jumped basically from behind by Vance and Nalls, and he kind of brushes them off and pushes over Vance, and Vance falls over and starts having a heart attack. I think we're supposed to assume, and yeah. uh, Nalls gets up close to him and realizes that his heart has stopped. And McCready's like, go get the doctor, go get Dr. Copper, untie him and get him to perform CPR. And as they get him on a table and, and Van, or Dr. Copper is giving CPR to Vance and then his stomach opens up and then his, Copper's arms fall into his stomach and then a, mouth, a giant teeth filled mouth closes around his arms and his arms pull off and he has stumps now. <laughs> and... I I'm love that nervous. moment. That is the best moment in the movie for me. Aside from just the first time you see tentacles flying everywhere and you're like, what the hell? That moment really, it surprised me. Uh, you know, it's, I think it surprised when I first saw it in the theater. Everybody in the theater like, what? Like it was, it is a total surprise. And it's timed so well so that like the paddles, they work the first time, you know. And it's the second time and it just sinks right in. It's a moment of the unexpected par excellence it really is and uh and it's so over the top with those teeth <laughs> you know it's almost reminiscent of jaws you know yeah. it's like shark teeth that the stomach has <laughs> <laughs> yeah like a bear trap closing on his arms uh i noticed because so i was also like how is this scene so surprising because it's it's shocking and i noticed that they're essentially they essentially present three sources of danger in the in the scene there's the dynamite in mccready's hand which he is like getting ready to ex blow up because they're yelling at him they're having an argument at the same time there's the uh clark is standing there with the scalpel in hand and we keep getting a shot of this scalpel he has hidden and we know he has the scalpel and he's about to do something with it that's the second source of danger and then we see the cpr going on on the table and the cpr going on on the table um, is by far the least, like, that's the least interesting thing going on in the room. It's the least threatening. And so that's the source that all of a sudden is the explosion of action. And it's so unexpected because of that. Like, our mind has been tricked into thinking the thing we're going to see is someone get stabbed or, or dynamite explode, right? Yeah, and it's also, like, CPR is life-saving, not life-threatening, you know? Yeah. So it's the complete opposite of what you think is, is happening as well, along with those two, like, diversionary threats. So it's brilliant. Now the character who is who has the heart attack and is and gets his arms bit off, 
that has to be, I'm sorry, not the one who gets the arms bit off, the character who has the heart attack and is a thing. That has to be the person who was with Blair, right? I'm not with Blair, uh, with, with, uh, what's his name? The guy I've been saying is the thing the whole time. Palmer. Palmer. Were they paired up? I, I, I wish I had noticed that. I wonder if they were paired up when they did that pairing off. I don't remember. No, so Vance stayed behind to watch Dr. Copper and the other, the other three that were tied up. But Vance is a thing. He's the one who has the heart attack? He's the one who has the, yeah, the heart attack and his stomach opens. So when did he become a thing? <laughs> very, maybe at the very beginning when the dog walked in. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I think I, I think I like Palmer. I think I like Palmer for that moment with with the dog like you've set up. So maybe Palmer got to him at some point. Those two were together and he and he got him. And made I believe him one. Okay. We have to see. I should have tracked more closely. Yeah, watching I'm, I'm just time. curious trying to figure it out. You know, I wonder if it all tracks cleanly. I bet it does. I think he was outside alone at one point before that scene, too. Uh, oh, yeah. And then he could it, the dog could the dog monster thing could have got him then, too. Yeah, uh, whenever a character's totally alone out, yeah. in the, out in the snow, they're always open to being <laughs> taken over without a scene yet, right? Yeah, because we know that there is a rogue thing out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as as Vance like rips off Copper's arms, McCready runs in and, and flamethrowers him, shoots him with a, a burst of flame, and that's when it like activates and that's what you guys were talking about before where the neck extends all the way to the ceiling and and pieces and parts of it are falling off and there's like a head comes i so i think what happens is the head comes out of the hole where the mouth was and then also he has the normal head that's starting to sever itself and and there's like green tentacle things that are connecting all in the neck and as it falls it shoots its tongue out and starts dragging itself across the ground and then it gets to the point where it's able to pop out its spider legs and a little, like, periscoping eyeballs come out. Yep. <laughs> and then it starts, stalks. it almost gets out. It almost walks out of the whole room. And and right at the last second, somebody, I actually think Palmer realizes it's there. And then McCready blasts him with fire. There's just a great scene of, I think it's the three of them. They're all standing there looking at the fire and then... Uh, like out of frame you see this thing kind of click 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 come walking by them and then they they all like kind of at, at the same time hear it and turn around and go like what the hell so uh, in that scene where where the the head it turns into a spider you know and scuttles away uh it cuts back to this reaction shot of palmer of all people who we may speculate is the thing and he says you gotta be fucking kidding me and that is a moment where the audience usually laughs because it's like the movie's talking about itself at that point. It's like they yeah. realize they've gone over the top and that the film really can, can at any moment go to these, mo- these extreme excesses of horror uh, and, and, and how the thing is limitless in its ability to transform into anything, uh, anything outrageous, uh, so that there is room for humor as much as terror and horror and repulsion. It's like the thing could be anything, not just any person, not any identity, but any shape. And that's like just so unfathomable that our response is either complete freezing or terror or laughter because, you know, you're laughing in the face of the abyss of what it possibly could be. Uh, And it's a great moment. Um, It's a great moment. So that scene also reminds me of Gary in the novella is talking about another character who was just revealed to be a thing. And he says, 
oh, I, you know, like he's shook to his core. He can't believe this other character is a thing. Like, I, it, it, it's so mind-boggling to me that this whole time he's been pretending and he has this big soliloquy about it. And then the next paragraph is that he is a thing. So it's the same moment of like, the, like oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. The guy saying it is a thing. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> the head with spider legs almost makes it out of the room and Mac burns it. All right, so uh, we had a little bit of a Arctic monster malfunction here, and it's uh, we, we lost Arnzen for a bit, but we got him back, but he is on his cell phone now. So if the audio is a little little weird, that's what's going on. We apologize, but we'll make do with what we can. Perfect. <laughs> so at this point, Mac wants everybody tied up because they know they can't trust anybody. And what he wants to do is is get all of their blood so that they, it can be tested and what he realizes is that each part of the thing is its own thing that wants to has its own will to survive so what they do is they cut each person's thumb with a scalpel and take blood and put it in a little petri dish each and then mccready is is heating up a coil with his flamethrower yeah and i just wanted to mention uh i think it's it's the character's windows i believe who's doing all the cuts the last second, he walks up with the final Petri dish, and, and McCready says, you too. And so he takes the scalpel that he's just cut all of these suspected things. He wipes it on his jeans to sanitize it, and then he cuts his own thumb. And I immediately like was like, what? Wait, what? What did he just do? Because we've already proven that the blood can be a carrier, and that's how he chooses to sanitize it. I don't know how he's not a thing and immediately in that moment. Did, it, did you catch that? Yeah, I caught him like doing that and like wiping it, and I kind of thought of the. the I didn't even think of the thing. I just thought of like blood, like born pathogens. I was like, oh no, yeah. no. But in particular, the the alien, like he is, he has just been cutting everybody's thumbs with the same scalpel, and this is apparently how he's sanitizing it. I think they're all things now. <laughs> yeah. I just think that's a moment where he is like getting up the nerve and he, he does something like a kid wiping his nose on his sleeve, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, he's totally lost it at that point. And you're totally, yeah, you're right that it's not sanitary and it's a contamination moment, of course. Uh, <laughs> but I think the audience forgets that. So after everybody's tied up like this, he, he starts the test and the first one he does it to is, Nalls. And what he does is he takes the hot coil and puts it into the blood. And basically the theory behind this is that the blood w is a thing of its own and it will it will scurry away from danger. So he puts it in the blood and nothing happens. So that shows that he is a human. After Nalls is, is confirmed to be human, McCready's like, let me show you what I already know and cuts his thumb and tests his own blood. And he is not. He is also a human. And then we move they on also to test the bodies. Yeah, the I think bodies that's next, well. actually. Yeah, they test the bodies of Clark, who had lunged at McCready and yeah. shot in the, was shot in the head, and then also Copper, who had his hands, you know, ripped off by that stomach monster. I, You know, I did want to mention in this moment, um, it's proven that Clark was a human and that McCready shot him. So this is our proof of human-on-human -human violence, and this is what we had talked about in the novella that I kind of felt was a missed opportunity, and that's brought to the movie, and that's the, the idea that the paranoia can lead to a mix-up and cause uh, kind of collateral damage outside of the, just the thing itself. The next thing that happens is Palmer's blood is, is tested. 
when he puts the the coil into the blood it jumps out and reacts and it's extremely iconic and i think what people think of when they think of this movie is that moment when the blood jumps out and squeals and makes noise it makes this noise like a little animal getting its tail stepped on or something i don't know it's 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 really startling yeah it reminds me of those uh like uh novelty games with like a uh, jar of peanuts or something like that and you open it up and a snake pops out of it that moment reminds me of that it's, it's a real <laughs> jack-in-the-box kind of moment there because <laughs> uh, you know you don't expect something that's liquid to take solid form and it just springs out and it's it's, it's awesome yeah i i noticed in that scene they're also kind of interrogating gary a little bit and saying like oh i'm going to save you for last because like we all know what that's going to show and so the, they're also misdirecting you in that moment again making you focus on gary and what they think he's going to be and then you know the misdirection is they're actually doing a test on palmer um and i don't know if any of you noticed it but right before the test of palmer it, it goes to him and he does this look like well i guess i'm caught but it almost goes by without you even noticing it. But he makes this like funny look on his face. Yeah, and then the next time we cut to him, he's like his like face is boiling and like bubbling <laughs> off of his skull, and he's like vibrating and jumping. Yeah, and this scene comes back to that, uh, like Mike was saying in the the dog scene, in that now all of a sudden they've created a scenario where two people are t- are or two or three people are tied up with a thing right and they're tied to it and they're all trying to get away and it's this crazy moment and they're all trying to escape but they can't and they're tied to it and it's like those dogs trying to chew their way out of the cage right yeah yeah it's totally uh, dramatizing that sense of there's no escape from the thing and uh but at the same time the thing doesn't seem to know how to escape either i mean like you said his face is bubbling up and it's transforming but Oddly, it doesn't know how to escape from ropes. I mean, it's, so it's really chaotic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's so everything, anything could happen, but there, like everybody's constrained, and and, and at the same time, McCready's trying to light his flamethrower, and it's not working. Oh yeah, it's like this is such a frustrating moment for for him and for the audience because it just feels like a cheat to suddenly it doesn't work, you know. And it goes on for so long. This is the car not not starting, right? Isn't this the same thing? exactly from like all horror movies right where the person gets in the car and like they the engine won't start won't turn over or the reload the reload and fumble so palmer's like head splits open and like bites onto windows and he's like flailing him around and like slamming into the ceiling and he's like it's just like this is when you see like the full power of the the thing and like it's like physical prowess because it's like it like at one point it like jumps on the ceiling and then like jumps down and it's like flailing a human man a full grown man and it it although it doesn't like to go and fight it likes to be secretive it it absolutely can fight yeah it's uh, fearsome in this moment right yeah, it's terrifying and uh, the the fact that the flamethrower won't work gets windows killed yeah exactly. Uh, and the whole like flailing the guy upside down out of its mouth. It's almost like a dinosaur eating a caveman kind of moment. <laughs> yeah. So great. Scene. Finally, McCready gets his flamethrower to work and he torches Palmer. And then when he like leaves because Palmer his like the thing at this point is not Palmer anymore, but he runs out into the snow and McCready chases him down and then throws a stick of dynamite at the flaming body and blows him away. And then as he comes back in, 
Windows is already turning into a thing as well, so he has to torch him. So that's two people gone, and then there's that shows how fast it works, right? Yeah. So the only people who who are left who are who are tied up are Childs and Gary, and they both of them are suspected, especially by McCready. McCready doesn't. I don't know if he like really likes Childs. Like it seems like there's like this antagonistic thing going on where he doesn't really. I don't know. They don't really love each other, so basically he's like i'm gonna test your blood right now and find out that you're a thing and when he tests it he's not a thing and then child is like now like cut me loose and then the same thing happens with gary they test gary's blood and and as they go to touch it it does not jump out he's also a human and then one of my favorite moments of the entire movie is when commander gary is like i know you gentlemen have been through a lot but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. And he like freaks out. And that's <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite really moments. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's wearing a military style uniform and all that. He's older. He looks like, you know, a colonel in the army or something. And I mean, that's like the authority right there. It's been constrained, but right all along. It's asserting its authority saying you should trust. You should have trusted me. And I don't know if, if you're reading like a, war or military theme through this movie and i think that's a interesting moment of <laughs> you know the boss was right all along kind of thing it also is a subversion of uh what happens in the novella because in the novella gary is a thing as i just mentioned earlier um he has this thing he has this soliloquy about how he can't believe that this other guy has been a thing all along and then it turns out he is and so in the movie when he isn't if you were familiar with the source material it would be a bit of a surprise, I think. No, I mean, I guess I just had the thought that, uh, you know, it's interesting that that happens at the moment where McCready loses control of his, his technology. He can't get the flamethrower going and all that. And it's like, it's a leadership issue, too. Like, everybody is constrained when there is no leader. And uh, it's, it, it adds to that feeling of chaos that you were mentioning before, James. It's not just that they're uh, trapped with the thing, like, right next to them, but that there's, there's the, the order is gone, like... They've gone through orderly. They've gone through this orderly process, and yet it, that's when the movie is at its least, I mean, you know, least controlled. It's like nothing's working right. <laughs> McCready's lost con- control of, it, of his flamethrower, and uh, you know, the chaos wins. <laughs> Definitely. So at this moment, Matt McCready, Nalls, and Gary all realize—they're basically the only ones left at this point, other than Childs. Childs is left in to basically keep watch over the main base, but those three go to Blair's shack. So frustrated at this moment that they leave Childs. Why in the world did they do this? As soon as they walk away, I immediately thought, okay, well, now Childs can't trust any of them because they could all get transformed. You can't let anyone out of your sight, damn it. You have to stay together. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of, after all that they've been through, it's kind of interesting that they decide... It's unbelievable because they wouldn't. This I feel like this wouldn't happen. I feel like two people would stay behind, right? Two people would go. Two people yeah, would stay you behind. Just can't. It's 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 a. It, I mean, I, I crazy things do happen, and especially in like scenarios where everybody is on edge. So it could happen, I think, but it's certainly not a smart thing for them to do in any stretch. So they get to Blair's shack and they op- they find that the door is open and there's loose boards on the floor that lead to this tunnel that we've been talking about that have been dug. And it leads to like a workshop area where the thing has been building a, a ship to escape and it had been stealing parts from the, the helicopter. Yeah, and they say there's a line there where they say something like, oh, he's been busy out here. 
So uh, the implication to me is that they that Blair is a thing, and that at some point he became a thing, and then he went down and started building this. This is a direct a direct uh, thing from the novel too, right? Where instead of um, a, a uh, anti gravity device is what the creature is making in the book, he, he's making an, an, a ship, which might be even more unbelievable. I don't know. <laughs> But it's it's another like it's uh, the idea that this creature is ghastly and uh, you know as much of an abomination as it is has retained some sort of advanced intelligence and is able to create a spaceship, right? Yeah, and maybe it has something to do with his intelligence as well. I don't know because he was the smartest of them. Yeah. yeah, Blair's intelligence. Just briefly, I guess uh, you know the alien has to have superior intelligence to have a spaceship to begin with to get there. You know, so it's just something we forget about. It's in the opening credits. <laughs> we forget yeah. all about that. And so it, it makes sense logically, but it almost comes out of nowhere because our attention has been focused on the organic kind of nature of this crazy uh, shapeshifter and, and just all the horror that the science fiction stuff comes almost out of nowhere. So when they first show that spaceship underground, you're like, no way he built that all, you know, in this short period of time. You know? Yeah. Um, and what's funny is, like, at least in the, the film, the spaceship was kind of established for the audience, whereas in the novel, it's just, like, at the end... I mean, the spaceship is established, but there's also other future tech, like the anti-gravity harness thing that's not really set up, and then it's just there at the end. It's believable there's because... There's some sort they, of engine that he's, that he's built, I think. Yeah, like an right? atomic energy en- engine that can yeah. power anything, seemingly. So, Knowles is keeping watch over the kind of grounds outside of Blair's shack and he sees Childs running through the running through the grounds I guess and they they react to this and they're like what is he doing and basically they're like he must have seen something or something so they decide to drop the dynamite that they were rigging they're rigging dynamite in the shack and they drop it down into the the warehouse area and then what they do is go through the entire complex and Basically, what, what they assumed had happened is Childs or the Thing had turned off the generator of the entire complex because the power had gone out. And so what they decided to do is they're like, it, if it destroyed the generator, we're all dead anyway. So we need to heat up the entire, we need to kill it basically before we freeze. So what they do is they go through in this last ditch effort and they, they're throwing like Molotov cocktails into each room and then throwing a flare after it. So lighting up the entire complex room by room, systematically going through and then they end up at the generator room. So there's kind of it's kind of a, a suicide pact gets gets made here, and they say none of us are getting out of here alive. We need to light this whole place up and try. And like they all kind of agree that they're gonna uh, sacrifice themselves to kill kill the thing here. Right. Yeah. It's a suicide pact is a great phrase for that. That's kind of what they do, and and they've given up hope really but they live on you know you know to do something heroic uh and that is a it is a like once again it's like a war movie kind of ending like you know we'll do it for the greater good and right. be self-sacrificial martyrs and all that so they're in the generator room and they start just they're laying dynamite to try to blow the rest of the the place from underneath and they kind of split off on their in their own little areas that they're setting up the dynamite and gary goes off into a, like a corner and then from right behind him, Blair Blair pops up and puts his hand over his face and starts into to meld his face. into his face. Starts to like meld into his face. His fingers start to, I guess, tentacle into Gary's face. And yeah. then 
Huge tactical error. They all decide to to go off on their own. <laughs> Come exactly. on, stop it. <laughs> so Nalz is, is kind of off on his own as well, and uh, we don't necessarily see anything happen to him, but as he walks away, uh, that he like goes off into the shadows, and Mac realizes that he's on his own, and he gets up and tries to start walking towards where Nalz was, and this is when we get kind of this like wave from under the ground, this tunneling of the thing that like knocks him flying because he's underneath like these floorboards basically and he's just like clicking along them and sends him flying. And then we get this like showdown between Mac and, and the thing. So before we get to that, the Nulls thing is really weird. Like he hears something creep, like something going on over where uh, Gary has been and he decides he's just going to walk off and investigate without telling uh, McCready who's right behind him. So it's again like a like a lack of communication, like what, what Mike was talking about, is like a big problem in this movie. And, and if they had just talked to each other and stuck together, so many of these things could have been avoided. And instead, he walks off and then disappears, and we never see him again. Yeah, and just think of the range of sizes that the thing has. In one second, it's like reduced down to Blair's Blair thing, if we can call him that, to his hand muffling uh, as Gary. Uh, by sticking the tentacles into his face and covering his mouth. But at at the same, you know, what is it, two minutes later or less, we have this giant underground wormy thing that kind of comes after McCready in in the cavern. And, you know, part of me is thinking, like, what? Like, if it's that big, why didn't it just attack the whole camp to begin with? And is this how the tunnels were made? And wouldn't they have heard it? I mean, the realism just goes out the window for me at that point. I mean, I really have problems with the whole underground tunnel stuff in this movie. But um, so, it, it's still, it, it, it's free to go over the top. I mean, once, once they start destroying everything, it's like the film is destroying its own logic and just saying, let's just be done with it. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think they, they do kind of hand wave the tunnels a little bit by saying, like, let's go down to the generator area or something. And I guess that's what these tunnels are supposed to be, like a pre-existing tunnel tunnel system that we just haven't seen up to this point. That was my read of it. That makes sense. Yeah, well, and then they go... The, yeah. the thing is also, like, underneath the generator room, though, so there's seemingly other tunnels right. that are underneath him as well, so that were also and, dug. And, yeah, and my theory is the big thing that comes out is the dog one. And my suspicion is that we're supposed to assume all along, because it absorbed multiple dogs maybe, and maybe a couple people too, that's why it's able to be so big and it's been down there like building strength throughout the movie. And Because this is our first... Because when it pops out, which we're about to get to, like it has kind of a dog look to it, right? Like It has this big almost werewolf-like jaw to it. Well, yeah, I think it almost has like a dog coming out of it also. It's like, it's definitely the the dog that we had seen escape earlier in the film. So if that's the case, then that means that Blair and Gary, potentially and possibly also Nalls, all three of them, those three vectors, if you will, they all run off and we don't know what happens to them. So yeah. I think that there's a huge opening for there to for this movie for like if we're talking about them wanting to make another movie in the future, there's a there's so many ways that this thing could have could have survived. Yeah, sure. Not even talking about the final two. Yeah. <laughs> the showdown between Mac and and the thing bursts. The thing that had knocked him over bursts out of the ground, and like you said, it has dog-like features, and he kind of rolls away from it, grabs a stick of dynamite, and like 
lights the dynamite, throws it at it, and then just gets the heck out of there. And it seemingly it, it, sets well, off a, he, a, a chain reaction, blowing he, the whole he complex He stops up. for a moment holding a piece of lit dynamite to yell, no, fuck you, or something like that. And it's this, it's like a kind of a funny moment, but that to me is another borderline. I don't know if someone would actually do that while holding a lit stick of dynamite. <laughs> Seems rather foolhardy. Right. Yeah, it's a transgression of genre too. It's it's like something Rambo might say. Or yeah. Something. It's it's like from a different genre altogether. From from an action uh, movie. So sure. Yeah, and and it is comedic, but maybe just because it's so out of place. And but the film just kind of keeps opening up the door to impossibility over and over and over again to the point where it's preposterous and anything really does go at the end. You know, the, the creature like there's there's a film theorist. Uh, maybe you've you've heard of him noel carroll he has a book called the philosophy of horror and he talks about monsters as being generally one of two types that are i think five or six in his uh theory they're either fission fu- figures or, or fusion figures that is that like a monster is either like a body part that separates from you and does its own thing like a dismembered hand or it's a fusion of two completely opposite categories of of uh, biology so like a wolf man that kind of thing and <clears throat> the creature and the thing is like a fusion of everything biological that it touches so it becomes this crazy chaotic beast uh, uh it's, it's like a fusion chaos figure and um it just the more it happens the, the less believable it becomes so i think carpenter smartly kind of resorts to familiar genres to help contain this story somehow and then it ends up being like, you know, what they would call like a Mexican standoff at the very end because of that. It's like it, it, it shifts genres at that moment. And, you know, so we get the relief of the big showdown and the, the creature is blown up, but it never really is. And um, the ending is just really interesting to me. So getting into the ending, Matt kind of like hobbles out of the rubble of the of the complex and he like finds a spot to sit and he has like a blanket around him and he's got his whiskey and he like takes a seat and while he's sitting there looking at the carnage and all the flames everywhere uh child shows up with a flamethrower and he walks up and he's like are you the only one who made it out and mac is like no obviously not because there's both of them and it's just this very interesting conversation that they have here where it's like Childs is like, how are we going to get out of here? And Mac is like, maybe we shouldn't. And they're kind of coming to grips with, I think each of them is showing that like, they think the other one is the thing. And there's no way they're either of them are getting out of the situation. So why not share this whiskey bottle that they have, share a drink and, and kind of just laugh about the situation and, and kind of the, the futility of it, I guess. How do you how do you guys feel about this ending? Um, I guess before I get your takes on it, I I, I want to say that to me I I don't know that I like it because to me it feels almost like I don't think that McCready in that moment would trust him. It feels like he's done so much to try and ensure that the thing gets destroyed, and he's already killed a person. I just I feel like he roasts him in that moment. I I don't know. Maybe that's what happens after the after the credits roll. What what do you how did you guys feel about that final scene? Did you like it? Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, so you're saying that you don't like it for the fact that it's like he ultimately failed 
in the fact that he didn't even really kill the thing and it seems like a victorious moment but it's not it feels like a surrender on his part because he's he's allowing the chance that the thing escapes when it feels all along to me like he was unwilling to do that i can see that or maybe at the end the thing's not going to freeze to death they already established that the thing wants everybody to freeze because it'll eventually get thawed out and survive Yeah, I mean, there's so many possibilities to that kind of open-ended resolution. I mean, they both could be things, just having a drink or something, you know. Uh, But my read on it is that maybe, I mean, like, like we've seen this in movies before. Like, two big, burly guys get in a fistfight, and they just exhaust each other and just, you know, like, help each other stand up and, you know, kind of breathe and laugh or something, you know. Like, it's like the end of the battle last two standing kind of have this moment of uh, i don't know what you would call it valor before the end (laughs) and they give up trying so there is a defeat there but there's also like it is communication if you think about it like if all throughout this movie there has been this issue of people not communicating properly and having the the existential crisis of not being able to really know what another person is thinking or, or who they are and you know the alien is us all along and all these things things it ends with this moment which i think i prefer to read optimistic which is let's just talk let's be human for a second you know and i think it's implied like by passing a bottle that this is a human act and only a fellow human being would 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 drink you know and, and kind of enjoy the moment and not be so preoccupied with just surviving and growing so you know maybe just keeping that distrust alive is what keeps them alive you know what i mean like they know they're gonna die in the arctic chill or the antarctic chill so to them it's just maybe they both are survivors but having that mutual distrust keeps them human and alive <laughs> am i well, reading too and, much and into it it's almost a trust a trusting moment if you, if you put it in that light because it's it's mccready and child's both willing to trust the other person enough not to just you know, roast them right then and there. So you're right. It, and maybe it is kind of a positive moment if, unless you want to look at it pessimistically and say that <laughs> their trust is going to get them killed and make the thing live on. <laughs> yeah. So like the thing, no, the creature knows it's one and it doesn't yeah. make a difference, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I tend to agree with you. I think that it's, it's more of a, I tend to think of it from a positive standpoint. Like I've always looked at it as like, it is an ambiguous ending, but for me, I've always thought they were both humans in that moment. And it's funny because it kind of reminds me of the ambiguity of like the end of Blade Runner, where it's like, it's in, which was the last project that we did. And it's kind of that, I like these more ambiguous endings that people were daring enough to do. The 80s version. The 80s, yeah. 80s Blade Runner, sorry. 82. And I like these, these endings that are more, it, it, they make you think a little more rather than, you know, if McCready had gotten away. It's interpretive, right? It's up, to, it's up to you to decide how you think it actually is. Exactly. And actually, in comparison to Blade Runner, there's something interesting that I wanted to bring up that I guess I'll just throw in now. Blade Runner and The Thing actually came out in theaters the same, the same exact week in 1982. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And also, I just wanted to tell you about June of 1982 very quickly is... This is the, the, the in, I believe in order, the release is in June of 1982. Poltergeist, Star Trek Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and then Blade Runner and the Thing in the same week. <laughs> wow. 
So that was just like one month in 1982. I can't even, all of those movies in theaters all at the same time. Yeah, I think I saw them all in theaters around then too. Uh, Khan was particularly hilarious. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This was a dark, dark movie compared to those. Though. You know, this is a real, uh, <laughs> the ending is so ambiguous. And, you know, is it critiquing the, like, all right. Rugged individuality wins in the end, right? Like McCready survives alone, that kind of thing. Um, but at the same to- by the same token, it's not really proven that he survives. And it's like yeah. it's this concept of man against nature, where nature's going to win no matter what. So it's really raising these philosophical issues. You could even read it like in terms of race, like. It- you know, a black man and a white man having this kind of like distrust and yet agreement to get along until the very end kind of thing. So like, what does that say about race relations in the eighties? Like where were we then? Um, and I, I just think it's, you know, and then maybe even going back to that, that masculinity idea that, you know, this is a macho kind of ending, you know, to, the tough guys survive and they kind of swap a drink and, you know, get swaggerly with each other. And, you know, you're left with male bonding that's empty, you know, and it is not going to survive. So like you can read so much, so many social issues into this, whereas poltergeist, you know, is, is, is goofy compared to, <laughs> compared to this, like the ghost story of poltergeist about little children being you know, sucked into the spiritual world through the TV. Um, you know, that's almost child's play compared to thing. <laughs> I like that. I, I, I think this is the superior film, in my opinion. Um, I, I think we, we need to end it here. I think we've, we've, we've said everything we can say and, you know, in a, as, as, as much as we can. Um, before, we, before we end, though, I wanted to ask uh, Mike in particular uh, if you have any additional like, general thoughts about John Carpenter, where this movie stands in his filmography, um, and maybe lasting impact of this movie kind of historically in, in the genre. Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, historically, this is a big one. Uh, and, it's, you know, like some one of you guys said earlier, it might be the, one of the best horror remakes ever. Uh, I mean, it's just it, it, it takes so many risks. Uh, it's like one of the best um, non-CGI and one of the last non-CGI horror films made that just totally celebrates the creative capacity of, of these special effects guys that we're working on. You know the the monster suits and and, and all the all the technical um, physical uh, representations of, of monstrosity. So like cinema goers back then really had it would would, would believe these things because they were like more organic, more physical, more analog, and so it had you know a real appeal to it that in some ways is lost now. And and so Carpenter should be you know this movie specifically should be you know, heralded for that as an example of the kind of greatness of, of that kind of cinematography, or I'm sorry, uh, of cinema, really, uh, um, before computers took over and assimilated it. But as far <laughs> as Carpenter goes, I mean, he's always dealing with these philosophical issues and going over the top, top moments that often bend towards absurdity and comedy. And, you know, he kind of has this tongue in cheek because I think it's, it's a sort of like a paranoid worldview that doesn't trust man's claim to greatness ever you know a lot of his movies i think are, are challenging uh 
that notion that man and science and all of the things that might make us valorous and, and heroic really are what we claim them to be. There's always something that's out to undermine us, including ourselves. Uh, you know, I can't remember which movie he did right before this one. Was it Christine? Uh, I don't know. Was it? It wasn't Halloween. No, uh, Halloween was a bit before, it. and this movie didn't do necessarily great at the box office. I don't think it did actually particularly well, but it's obviously had a, an amazing cult following, and and people, like you were saying, people will herald this as one of the greatest horror films, horror sci-fi, horror mystery films ever made. Well, he- hearing what it was going up against, I guess it doesn't surprise me too much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, e- I think E.T. ended up being the highest grossing film yeah. of all time at that point. Up to that point in 1982, it was the highest grossing. I mean, you got Blade Runner coming out at the same time. That's probably another reason why Blade Runner was is is in, you know wind up being a flop in the in the box office. <laughs> All I'm going to say is rated R horror films are always better than PG films because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have they, they have license to do this kind of stuff that the Carpenter does, which is go over the top. You know, the 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 it's more free to come at you in different angles, and I'm not going to be censored as much to protect the children and such you know et is the direct opposite of this movie it is the you know domesticated alien in your home who's a happy you know brother or something it's not here we have the alien in the camp that's the total enemy within uh so they're completely opposite movies and sadly you know the more philosophical genre films the more uh rated r and taboo films that might have downer end things there they never get the mass audience big box office uh, we, uh, we are always seeing that today generate, as well yeah they always generate a cult following though because you know people think about them and they realize the value of them and they want to keep them alive speaking of cult followings uh the film that he directed before the thing was escape from new york <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah kurt russell. Another kurt russell movie yeah <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end the discussion. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Mike, for coming on. It's been it's been a pleasure. This has been a, I think, a really fun conversation that uh, we're 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 happy to have. Hey, I am honored that you invited me to be one of your first the guests, and uh, you know, uh, this movie really stands the test of time. I think because it takes creative. Uh, thought to try to outwit the alien and the alien is all is you know as scary as it is and how over the top it is when it's in transition in the movie it's really an imitator right so the thing is about man's uh, ingenuity really beating out imitation and carpenter is really making a point here about cinema i think by taking kurt russell out of disney and putting him into these movies that are over the top and crazy but so much fun entertaining think pieces that you know he's celebrating the creative imagination on the dark side (laughs) all right well uh you know thanks again for coming on uh where if people wanted to uh follow you on social media maybe uh find out where they can get some of your books check those out where can they do that well you know i've been running a website called gorelitz.com g-o-r-e-l-e-t-s uh for years but i'm really active on twitter I think that's where I do a lot of my communication. So uh, my Twitter handle is at symbol Mike Arnzen, A-R-N-Z-E-N. And anybody that follows me there can, you know, link to other things and such. And, of course, there's MichaelArnzen.com, which has a 
you know, connections to all sorts of websites. I always have new things coming out in different anthologies and online websites, as well as single, you know, single title books. I'm working on a short story collection right now and uh, also an academic study. So, uh, you know, if people just uh, sign up for my newsletter or uh, check me out on, on Twitter, I think they'll always be up to date. And I hope people check it out. Yeah, absolutely, they should, and uh, we hope that maybe in the future we can have you back if we have another uh, another project that makes sense. Because this has been a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot, Mike, uh, and uh, uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much, Mike. Right on. Thank you, guys. See you later. All right. Thank you so much uh, to Mike for joining us and talking about the thing. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, totally agree. Anytime you want to come back on, Mike, just let us know. Absolutely. Uh, and if you want to connect with him, you can follow him on Twitter at Mike Arnzen, A-R-N-Z-E-N. And you also can go to his website, gorlitz.com. And if you wanted to find us anywhere else, you can find us at Ink to Film on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And also, if you wanted to send us feedback, we actually have a Gmail, inktofilm at gmail.com. And you can send us comments, concerns, feedback, as well as any sort of information you wanted to send us about our next upcoming project, Howl's Moving Castle. Absolutely. And if you enjoyed this episode and you, and you would like for us to keep going, the best way you can do that is to support us by subscribing or leaving us a review. Uh, a review like this review from Cherry Magnolia on iTunes, five stars. In the middle of the second episode, you guys are talking so calmly about a story that gives me a visceral reaction anytime I see Pennywise as an adult is kind of awesome. LOL. Great job so far. So that came to us during our IT coverage. Yeah, thank you so much for that. We love to hear from our listeners. We also wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And also Audible, if you guys wanted to get that 30-day free trial and one free credit for an audiobook, you can go to our affiliate link, audibletrial.com forward slash film. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I'm excited to get into our next project. Uh, until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See you guys. Yeah.